on June the 19th, 1865. Major General Gordon Granger landed at Galveston in Texas. With his arrival came news that those who had been enslaved were now free. News that arrived a full two and a half years after Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation of January the 1st, 1863. Slaves declared free in 1863 did not start to live free until 1865. And so, each year on June the 19th, there is a celebration called Juneteenth of this delayed emancipation. Well, in our Bible passage today, Paul is saying that Christians have been declared free, and now it is time to live free. Listen to how he describes that path to practical freedom from sin in Romans 6, verses 12 to 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. Here Paul teaches a motivating battle plan to give lasting encouragement in the fight for freedom from sin and for righteousness. This motivating battle plan to give lasting encouragement in the fight for freedom from sin and for righteousness has three Elements, motivation, plan, encouragement. First, Paul gives real motivation. Look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Because of what Christ has done on the cross... Because of what he has done by his Spirit in our lives when we believe in him, therefore, Paul is saying, we are to take an active approach to dealing with sin in our lives. The great uh, evangelical bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, put it like this in his seminal work on holiness. It is thoroughly scriptural and right to say faith alone justifies, but it is not equally scriptural and right to say faith alone sanctifies. In justification, the word to be addressed to man or woman is believe, only believe. 
In sanctification, the word must be watch, pray, and fight. What God has divided, let us not mingle and confuse. Paul is saying, because of grace, because of Christ's rule, because of Christ's resurrection, because of our identity, dead to sin and alive to God, as we saw last week, we therefore are actively to make sure that sin does not reign. You say, well, why is this real motivation? Well, because it is real about the true Christian condition. No longer an ugly caterpillar or pupa in its chrysalis, a butterfly, but not yet emerged fully from its cocoon and needing to fight actively. I like the story of uh, D.L. Moody, who once attended a conference with a man who is claiming to have attained entire sinless perfection. The next morning, he sat next to him at breakfast. Slowly and carefully, he proceeded to pour a jug of milk over his head, and the man's sinless perfection evaporated before everyone's eyes. Perhaps uh, you know the story of uh, the woman who came up to the preacher after a service one Sunday and said, you know, I haven't sinned for 20 years, to which the shrewd pastor replied, you must be very proud about that. And and she said, well, yes, I am actually. (laughs) Unlike many zealous, pious theorists who pile unnecessary guilt on the normal Christian, Paul is a realist about our condition, a wake-up call to the laid-back Christian, also motivating to the fearful Christian. Paul is not giving us impossible goals to attain. He is saying, become who you are in Christ, or become who you are becoming in Christ. He's not just saying, you must do it. He is also saying, you can do it. First, Paul gives real motivation. Second, Paul gives a strategic battle plan. Look at verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, the word instrument is used elsewhere by Paul to mean a weapon. So Paul here could be describing the different parts of ourselves, our members, each element of our body, as well as our minds. He's already mentioned that passions are included in the previous verse. All as a tool or weapon, either for growing in righteousness and godliness, or for the opposite tendency to unrighteousness. A strategic battle plan here has a defensive and an offensive element. Defensive, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. So the Christian is to refuse to allow their attributes to be used for aims that conflict with that of Christ. Offensive, 
But present yourselves to God and your members as instruments for righteousness. The Christian is to use their attributes for aims that will further the interests of Christ. In other words, Paul is encouraging the Christian to take decisive action. Uh, Someone once told me a story that illustrates the difference between appearing to decide and actually deciding. There are five birds sitting on a wire, he said. Three decide to fly south. How many are left? The usual answer given is two. But the man carried on. No, still five. They've decided, but they ain't done anything about it yet. So often we fail because we appear to decide, but really we haven't done anything about it yet. Paul is saying we have to take action. Not presenting our attributes to unrighteousness and instead presenting them to righteousness. What does that mean? Well, the most famous biblical illustration is the life of Joseph. High-ranking official in Potiphar's house. He's approached by Potiphar's wife to commit adultery with her. Right there and then, Joseph decided and acted. He refused and fled. In a sense, we must not think about it too much. We must just say no to unrighteousness and yes to righteousness and get out of the zone of temptation just as soon as we can. Like all battles, however, the battle against sin and for righteousness can lead to Battle fatigue? When will it end? Will we ever finally defeat sin's rearguard action against the Christian? So then Paul tells us not just why, real motivation, not just how, strategic battle plan, but also when, with third, lasting encouragement. Look at verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. Christian, Paul is saying, be encouraged. Sin will have no dominion over you. It may seem like you cannot defeat that habit, but because of who you are in Christ, both now and forever, sin will not win. This encouragement is no mere empty platitude. It is based on truth. Since, because you are not under law but under grace. A shift of realms has taken place in Christ. Once we were under the law and subject to its commands and penalties, but now we're under grace, rescued from the penalty of sin with the power of the Holy Spirit to fight for freedom from the presence of sin. So because of this sovereign grace, 
we can be confident that sin will not win. Oh yeah, the fight is real. The battle is ongoing, yes, but the final victory is certain. We're on the winning side. Lift up your head then, Christian. Any defeat is only a temporary one. Here is lasting encouragement to pursue righteousness with real motivation and a strategic battle plan. Some of us most need to refocus on that strategic battle plan. Perhaps you don't see that sin as requiring decisive action. You're just going to ponder it some more. Uh, former President Ronald Reagan once had uh, a relative who took him to a cobbler for a pair of new shoes. The cobbler asked uh, young Reagan, do you want square toes or round toes? Reagan wasn't able to decide, so the cobbler gave him a few more days. Several days later, the cobbler saw Reagan on the street and asked him again what kind of toes he wanted on his shoes. Reagan still couldn't decide, so the shoemaker replied, well, come by in a couple of days, your shoes will be ready. When the future president did come by, he found one square-toed and one round-toed shoe. This will teach you never to let people make decisions for you, the cobbler said to his indecisive customer. I learnt right then and there, Reagan said later, if you don't make your own decisions, someone else will. Some Christians have... One square-toed and one round-toed shoe. Take decisive action today. You say, well, how? Well, make a strategic battle plan. What does that mean? Well, the way you would if you're formulating a business plan or planning your study schedule for end-of-year exams or putting in place a fitness plan for spring training. To excel at work, you need to plan your work and then work your plan. To excel at holiness, you need a plan for your holiness and then work for your holiness. For instance, in all my years, I have never yet come across anyone who has fallen into serious sin who is at the same time reading the Bible and praying each day. Twenty-five years of pastoral conversations, never once have I discovered that. Seems to me then the first element of a strategic battle plan is to read the Bible each and every single day. Crawl from under your bed covers, reach for the Bible on your nightstand, and before you have a shower, put your feet on the floor or do anything at all. Read it. Don't read it on Monday for an hour, get exhausted, and then don't read it again for a month. Read the Bible a few minutes every day. It's, it's like eating. You, you can't eat a lot one day and then not eat for a week and expect to be healthy. What counts is every single day some good nourishing food. So start your strategic battle plan with a plan to read the Bible each day. Then think of the most holy person you know. 
I guarantee you that if you have ever met a holy person, you will immediately think of sweetness, light, positivity, freedom. Get coffee with that person. Ask him or her how they fight sin and how they live free and put that in your strategic battle plan. Jonathan Edwards had a series of resolutions in his plan. They began with a statement making sure no one would think that holiness is about a legalistic checklist. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat Him by His grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to His will for Christ's sake. One of the resolutions says this, Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. There are 70 of them. Perhaps your strategic battle plan could have seven gospel resolutions to live fully for Christ. A.W. Tozer said this, every man is as holy as he wants to be. Others of us then need um, real motivation to want to be holy. You know, the, the damage done by an unrealistic view of the Christian condition can be really quite significant. I, I come across people who are naively passive about sin. They think that sin is no danger. The great Puritan John Owen said, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Let no man think to kill sin with few easy or gentle strokes. He who hath once smitten a serpent, if he follow not on his blow until it be slain, may repent that ever he began the quarrel. And so he who undertakes to deal with sin and pursues it not constantly to the death. Sinning is eating sugary, flavored, carcinogenic slop that will kill you. If you are not real about the need constantly to be killing it. Kevin DeYoung, in his book, The Whole in Our Holiness, puts it like this. Not only is holiness the goal of your redemption, it is necessary for your redemption. And so in Romans 8 verse 13, Paul says, we must by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. The Puritans used to call this mortification. Think of it like weeding. I'm not much of a gardener. I do it, but I don't love it. In our garden, because it's near a road, there are various tough, fast-growing, perennially returning weeds that migrate from over the fence each spring and start infesting the ground yet again. You can mow them. You can pull them up. They always return. The only way to get rid of one is to dig it up by the roots. Similarly, we must dig sin up by the roots. Ask yourself, 
What is the sin behind the sin? You say, it's easy for you, preacher. What about you? Well, okay, for instance, when I was first approached about coming to College Church almost seven years ago, I decided that in our first meeting, I would declare to them straight away my sins. It seemed to me that they would want to know anyway, so I might as well get it out there. I said, at this point in my life, my main sin is worry. This is easy for me to excuse. I care about people. All our family has been like this. Our families seem to be wired as little shepherds caring for people. We, we carry people's burdens. It's hard for us to put them to one side. But still, Jesus tells us not to worry. I'm also a thinker, and I love words. My mind is always running at 100 miles an hour, thinking out arguments to apologetic questions or cultural issues or exegetical matters of various texts. I, and I've discovered, I've done some research on this, that people who love words are by a significant percentage more likely to worry than people who don't. I suppose we tend to have a verbal conversation going on all the time. I also hate it when I can't solve a problem. My mind gnaws at it all the time until it is solved. The trouble is, as you take on more responsibility, as you will discover if you have not already discovered, some problems are just unsolvable. So there are lots of acceptable reasons. Some of them are good. Some of them are part of my nature. Some of them from my background and family. But still, Jesus says, don't worry. So when I catch myself going around in circles about something, I have to ask, what is behind it? What is the root cause? Now, somewhere behind all sin is a specific version of the sin of unbelief. Did God really say? That's the doubting whisper that echoes through every tempting voice. Is it really going to be good for you to follow God? And so we must really, truly believe that God is completely good and utterly sovereign even over this matter about which we are so passionately concerned. And with that truth of God's sovereign goodness refreshed, renewed, we then approach any matter with a different kind of question, namely, what is God's purpose in this? So it's real motivation to do something about it that the fight of sin is not passive. But, you know, if people can be naively passive about sin, people can also adopt a negative, even condemnatory activist approach that keeps them from intimacy with God. One author on the topic of holiness describes how when he's sitting at his desk, he sometimes daydreams. And then suddenly he finds himself caught in self-pleasing fantasies. 
At this point, he writes, I have two choices. The one that most appeals to me is to sigh. Will I never learn? Is it worth the effort? The other is to say, thank you for breaking through again. I do this all the time if it weren't for you. I praise you that the Holy Spirit is still with me. I open my mind as far as I know how to do my tasks for him and in the way he wants it done. You know, the Bible has a wonderful balance with regard to holiness that is real motivation. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Four, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so we are to work out what God is working in because of the good pleasure of God. Being holy is divinely pleasant. Therefore, be holy. A truly holy life is the most pleasurable life. God pours his pleasure on the holy man or woman. So, some of us need to focus more on a strategic battle plan. Others of us need real motivation. All of us need lasting encouragement. Look again uh, with me at verse 14 of Romans chapter 6. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. There are scholars who say that the first part of this verse is more orientated to the future, looking to the eschatological moment when in glory sin will finally have no control over us whatsoever anymore. Others look at this more as an imperative encouragement, meaning Paul is saying that because Christ has won the victory, our battle with sin will be must be victorious. I think it's both, which is why I say this is lasting encouragement. Paul is saying the final victory over sin is assured, so be encouraged now. It's like he's opening a a little window onto the expansive narrative of uh, Bunyan's famous Pilgrim's Progress. Walking from yonder wicket gate, fighting through the slough of despond, leaving behind vanity fair, and on, and on. There is a struggle. First struggle is real. But the celestial gate is on the horizon. 
It's coming. It's around the corner. Look at the whole picture of the journey so that you are encouraged now as you walk on by this beautifully magnetic, attractive vision of the final destination. And so then in the second half of the verse, Paul gives solid reasons for such lasting encouragement. It is because you are not under law but under grace. Uh, these words are so concentrated. He, he packs a universe of exegesis into a single TARDIS of a sentence. Paul is saying, the commands of Moses cannot by themselves save. To live under those commands is to live under condemnation. Not everyone in the time of Moses was only under the law because, of course, David and the other true followers of God believed God and received grace. But that time under the law has now changed. We are now under grace. Paul does not mean that the moral law no longer constrains. Far from it. Paul means that we now have grace to forgive us, empower us, and specifically encourage So this being under grace then gives us lasting encouragement. You see, the longer I am in pastoral ministry, the more I realize we all need encouragement. You can look at someone apparently successful beyond belief, but you don't know the doubt that eats away at his or her mind. You don't know the story of insecurity that has fueled the ambition for greatness. Now, we all need to be given a vision of final victory that provides lasting encouragement. Muhammad Ali, usually recognized as one of, if not the greatest boxer of all time, had to train harder than anyone to achieve his lightning-fast reflexes and thunderous punches. This is how he reasoned. I hated every minute of training. But I said, don't quit. Suffer now and live the rest of your life as a champion. Don't quit on training for holiness either. Train now hard sweat, suffering denial of sugary, carcinogenic, temporary pleasures, so that then you will live forever with God under grace in glory. I like the story I heard of Abraham Lincoln. What greater leader has there been? What more impressive man with a sense of destiny, a mastery of words, and ability to shape a whole nation? I am told that Lincoln carried with him a newspaper clipping saying that he was a great leader. If Lincoln needed encouragement that he was a great leader... Christians need encouragement that they will win. Carry this Bible clipping with you. 
You are not under law. You're under grace. So sin will have no dominion over you. Well, here then is Paul's motivating battle plan to give lasting encouragement in the fight for freedom from sin and for righteousness. Real motivation. You are going to have to fight. And fight hard. But God has the power through his Holy Spirit in you to enable you. And when you fail, go back to God again for fresh power to keep on going. Strategic battle plan. Read the Bible every day. A list of resolutions to become more like Christ in specific areas where you need to grow. Model your life after a holy man or woman that can give you a standard to attain. I want to be like him. I want to be like her. Lasting encouragement. Keep going. The struggle is real. You will win because Christ has won. In uh, February 2006, Luxembourg-born American Edward Steichen's photograph, The Pond Moonlight, sold for $2.9 million, the highest price ever paid for a photograph at the time. Did you know that Steichen almost gave up taking photographs on the first day he took pictures? He was 16, he bought a camera, and he took 50 shots, but only one of the 50 even turned out. A picture of his sister sitting at a piano. Edward's father was not too impressed and thought, frankly, it was all a bit of a waste of time. But his mother insisted that the picture of his sister was so beautiful, it made up for 49 failures. Her encouragement convinced him to stick with his new hobby. And Steichen went on to become one of the world's most renowned photographers. Perhaps you've had 49 failures this week. Today is a new day. Start again.